Thanks for joining us this week for the Church at Starkey Hills podcast. Be sure to visit our website at starkey.church to find all the latest information and upcoming events. You had an opportunity to worship God this morning in worship. I know I did, and if you did, I want you to celebrate God in sending us an amazing worship team to help us with that. Amen? <clears throat> now, if you didn't, it's your own fault. And I want to tell you, God is disappointed in you. I don't care. I, I've, I've become keenly aware that one of my spiritual gifts is, is, is prophecy. And there's two kinds of prophecy, and one is to foretell the future. I ain't got that. Okay, you don't either. And neither does a little palm reading lady. You give her five bucks in a single wide trailer telling you your future. She ain't got it either, okay? But there's another form of, of prophecy that's a gift from the Spirit, and that is to foretell to proclaim what God has already spoken and declared. And he has spoken and declared that we should be worshipers of his greatness. And so I want to encourage you and challenge you to move forward, man, and, and experience what it means to go into his presence in worship. Well, welcome today. We're going to have a great time launching into a brand new series called Counter Culture. We're going to be in the Old Testament in the book of Daniel, who is a prophet. It's a book of prophecy, so you can open your Bibles or your devices there to Daniel chapter 1. Now, as we go there, I want to tell you a few things about the book. It's separated into two primary divisions. One is chapters 1 through 6, which would be historic. Chapters 7 through 12, which would be prophetic. In his prophetic counsel, 7 through 12, he tells us a lot of things are going to happen. It's really some cool stuff. It helps understand the book of the Revelation, the final book in the Bible and at the same time he tells us in chapters uh, in chapter 12 and then toward the end he tells us both of the coming Messiah Jesus and he also tells us of Jesus's second return and so uh, so it's a it's an it's an incredible book and it's very very accurate pinpoint accuracy coming from God himself now I want you to know something about the author it's Daniel himself who was a Hebrew boy and, and in this book, if, you've, if you were raised in church and Bible school and you saw felt boards and all that stuff, you're going to see some very familiar stories in here. You're going to see about the fiery furnace and you're going to see a lion's den and all that. But I want you to know there's something behind those amazing stories that's incredible. It's God calling people out, little boys like, and, and, and men and women like us, to a different place, a different level of commitment. And so Daniel, <clears throat> along with his other friends that he runs with, they are boys. They are young teenagers. Historians suggest they were probably 13 to 15 years old, okay? And I want to suggest today, if you got the voicemail, uh, who got two voicemails? Say, I did. Well, just so you know that first one, I was not wearing Kendra's underwear when I sent that. That was supposed to go as a text, and it came out as a woman's voice. So, you know, I didn't eat a helium balloon. That was just a different deal. That's why I sent another one. And so, uh, so what we have is these, these young boys, 13 through 15 years old, who are just boys, you know. Possibly they're, they haven't even gone through puberty yet. Their voices hadn't even changed yet. And yet they were going to be called to a different place to stand for God, different than they had ever thought they would see possible. A different level of commitment than you and I will ever have in our life. What's going to happen is the nation of Israel is going to spend 70 years in captivity in Babylon. Okay, Now, it, it'll change leadership. It'll change 
authority four times during the seven years. So Daniel begins as about 15 years old. He's taken into captivity. He'll stay there for 70 years. He'll live a few more years. Daniel will live a, a life of about 80 years, but it's not what he planned. It's not what he thought life would look like. And so we're going to dive into that. So let's talk a little bit about Babylon. Now, Babylon is a real place. Uh, Babylon is modern-day Turkey. And, and so when we think about Babylon, I want you to know it's not just a place, but there's more to it. It is a worldview that existed before this earth came into existence. It's a worldview. It's an antithesis, a counterfeit, a fake, an opposite position of God's. That's what Babylon stands for. It is a very real place, modern-day Iraq, okay? But it's also a mindset. It's pushing back against the truth of God's Word, who He says we should be, and what our life should look like. Now, in our world, it's often said that everybody can be bought, that everybody has a price, and what I mean by that is all of us have a standard or a, a, a conviction or a place that we say we're going to draw a line and I will not go past that. Well, you won't until the price is right and the benefits are greater than the conviction. Or you won't until the suffering becomes harder than the conviction that you have in your heart. And, and so today what we're going to dive into is a simple question, where is your line? Where's your line? The line that you've drawn in the sand, the line that you've etched in granite, the line that is fixed in time that you will not cross, that you will not breach, that you will not push past. Now let me tell you something about your line. You're, you have to define your line before you ever get to the place where you need to draw a line. The line needs to be predetermined. It needs to be fixed let me just tell you, if you wait to determine the line that you will not cross, when the enemy invites you to cross the line, you won't even see the line coming. And next thing you know, you'll be in a land of, of, of sacrifice where you've sacrificed your convictions. You'll be in a place that you never determined to be because you never took time to define the line and I ask the question again, so where is your line? We're going to look at Daniel today and we're going to begin... In Daniel chapter 1. Now, you're going to notice something today. We're doing things brand new. i got a screen up here because I'm cool. No, not, not that. I've got a screen up here because when we move into a new worship center, I want to help you engage in what God is speaking for a week. And so what I want to learn to do myself is when I read Scripture, I want to hold this Bible. And when I stop reading Scripture, I want to lay this Bible down. I want you to begin to understand when I'm chattering up here, it's me preaching it's counsel, it's commentary. When I'm reading the scripture, you need to listen, pay close attention to that more importantly. So when I'm reading scripture, I want to pick up my Bible. When I lay down my Bible, you'll know I'm, now it's commentary. Now it's just old Joel preaching, okay? And so today we're going to begin in Daniel chapter 1, verse 1, and this is what it looks like. It says, in the year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon advanced against Jerusalem and laid it under siege. Now, on here you'll see this word uh, Babylon. Your translation may have the word Shinar. 
Okay, uh, and we're going to see today, I'm in the New English Translation. If you're in a New American Standard, if you're in the Message, if you're in uh, NIV, you're probably going to see Babylon right there. And you're going to see other words <clears throat> that weren't in the original King James and, uh, and New King James. So we're going to explain that today because it helps us unpack what God is trying to say. Now what's going on is this is 2,625 years ago, okay? That's 605 B.C., that's when uh, King Nebuchadnezzar moved in to take captive the nation of Israel. Now, Nebuchadnezzar sent his, his troops from, uh, from modern-day Iraq, from Babylon, to Jerusalem. It's about 1,000 miles. He sends them to Babylon to take them uh, captivity, to siege them. Now, uh, Jehoiakim was a terrible king. He reigned for 11 years, and he was terrible. He was wicked. He was ungodly. He, he was unbiblical. He didn't do what the Bible said he was supposed to do. And it's odd because he's the son of Josiah, who was an amazing king, who was a godly king, arguably the greatest king, second maybe only to David, had less really mistakes than David. He was an amazing king, but Jehoiakim was a terrible king. And so Israel now through the years, had been warned that they were going to be taken captive. God warned them through all kinds of prophets. And he told them, listen, you can't keep living disobedient lives as individuals and a nation and not pay the penalty because God disciplines those he loves. So now listen, for 490 years, the nation of Israel now has um, decided there's one rule, one law that God had given that they're not going to pay attention to. For 490 years, every seventh year, they were supposed to leave the land untilled. They weren't supposed to produce crops on that field in the seventh year. It was a sabbatical year, a Sabbath year of the land. So for 490 years, they ignored that. So now, God is going to put them in captivity for 70 years. A year for every seventh year that they did not obey. And so the, the, the nation has become this apostate, apathetic, cold, calloused people, okay? And God does, he's merciful, he's patient, he's gracious, but he will not be mocked. And there's a day coming in all of his creation that he disciplines and we pay the penalty for what we've done. Now, as we go forward, uh, we're going to realize that God has given us boundaries, He's given you boundaries, me boundaries, guidelines, mandates, laws, things that we're supposed to obey. And when we don't obey them, it's no different now in 2020 than it was in 605 B.C. and before. God gives us rules with an expectation that we will follow his rules. But what we have is a world that wants to rewrite the script. We want to rewrite the rules so they pacify and satisfy the tendencies, the, the preferences, the proclivities of our life. We want a book that says you can be however you want to be and God is going to be fine. And I want, I want to tell you something. That's a lie. That is not true. God is, is the author of the rule book for life. And it's important that we live according to that book. Now, all along the way in our life, we're supposed to establish, establish lines that will not be breached, that will not be passed. And so we're going to see that today, how the enemy helps us cross the line. You see, there's four strategies that the enemy has today in, 
In Daniel chapter 1, just a few verses, you're going to see four strategies that the enemy uses to help you, to encourage you, to entice you to cross the line. Because he doesn't want you to be on the God side of the line. He wants you to be over there in this new, quote, enlightened, in this new, quote, liberal land where you're free to express yourself. Meanwhile, God is saying, that's on the wrong side of the line. The first thing he wants to do, the first uh, strategy he will use for you, and he did it in the nation of Israel, in the Hebrew boys, is he will relocate you. He'll, he will relocate you. Now, in the scripture, it says, it says in Daniel chapter 1, verse 2, Now the Lord delivered King Jehoiakim of Judah into his power along with some of the vessels of the temple of God. So, so pause right here. He, he delivered Israel into captivity. He didn't just take the people. He went in and ransacked the temple. Okay, He took the people and the goods, the, 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 the instruments of the temple. He's taken them all. And it says along with some of the vessels of the temple of God, and he brought them to the land of Babylonia. Now, your translation may say Shinar. Now, we're going to talk about that in just a minute, where this whole thing came from. And it says, uh, to the temple of his lowercase g God, and he put the vessels in the treasury of his God. Now, what happens here is, is as I said earlier, Babylon is modern-day Iraq. Okay, it's over in the Middle East. It's a real place. But I want you to know that it's not just a place on the globe and not, not just a, a geographic location on the map. It's a worldview. It's a mindset. It's a philosophy. It's a thought process. And it is the opposite of a godly worldview. It's a fake. It's, it's an antithesis of the whole thing. It's full of idolatry and rebellion and evil. And it's known as in its infancy as Shinar. Now, it goes back to Genesis chapter 11 when we first see Babylon, okay? Now, when we first see Babylon uh, emerge, I want you to know it's not the first time that it, it didn't just uh, develop. It didn't just bah, come out of nowhere. The idea of a Babylonian worldview goes way back before earth itself. It goes all the way back into heaven. When Lucifer, the anointed cherub, man, when he rose up and said, hey, I got a better plan. Why don't we come together here, a coup in heaven, and we'll just take over heaven? He says, I will arise. I will ascend. The great five I wills of pride. And God says, no, you won't. And so he booted Lucifer and a third of the angels from heaven. Some of them landed on this earth. Some were taken cap uh, captive to the end times. And so what happens is now, Lucifer shows up in the garden as Mr. Crafty. And the same thing, this Babylonian worldview, I got a better plan, emerges, shows up in the garden. Not, it goes on, and the world becomes buys into the Babylonian worldview so much so that God is disappointed that he created all of mankind, and he floods the earth and wipes them all out, except for Noah and his family. So the idea, the Babylonian mindset, has been around before this earth ever came into existence. So what about Shinar? Where does it show up as a place, Babylon, first? It shows up in Genesis chapter 11, verse 1. This is what it says. You'll remember the story. <clears throat> it says the whole earth had a common language and a common vocabulary. It says when the people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar. Your translation may say Babylon and settled there. Now, then they said to one another, come, let's make uh, bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick instead of stone and tar instead of mortar. It says then they said, uh, see, otherwise, 
They said, we'll build a tower. There we go. They said, come, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered across the face of the entire earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the people had started building. And the Lord said, if as one people all sharing a common language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be beyond them. And the Lord said, oh, so here we go. So what happens is this. He says, he says they begin to build a, uh, build a tower, okay? A tower that would uh, speak to the greatness, not of God, but the greatness of who they are. They said, let's make a name for ourselves." Now, I want you to notice something. If you'll remember, we stopped last week in John chapter 17, and the topic was unity, right? The power of one. And so even in evil cultures, God knows when people come together in unity, there is a power, a synergy, when we all come together to accomplish great things. It's true in Shinar, in Babylon. God saw it. He said, they're coming together. He had told them to spread out. And, and, and take over the whole earth. But they wanted to come together and build this tower that ascended into heaven. And, and so we realized that the idea of Shinar or a Babylonian worldview had been around. Uh, it emerged. It has been around for a long time. And it shows up at, at the Tower of Babel. Because God scattered them. And we get Babel. We get Babylon in Shinar. Now, Zechariah chapter 5 verse 11 had, had prophesied and said, listen, it, it, Babylon ain't going away. Babylon will resurface. Babylon will rise up. We read, as we read in Revelation 17 and 18, we find out that Babylon is, is even in the end events. In fact, in chapter 18 verse 2 of Revelation, this is what it says. It says, he shouted with a powerful voice. He said, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a lair of demons, a dwelling for every unclean spirit, a dwelling for every unclean bird, a dwelling for every unclean and detestable beast. It has fallen. Now, in the end, it will fall. In the end, Babylon will fall, but it's still alive. Now, I want you to know something. Here we are, 2,625 years post-Daniel, okay? The Babylonian worldview the opposite of God's biblical worldview is alive and well. And so what the enemy knows is if he relocates you, he can expose you. If he relocates you or removes you, you are vulnerable, okay? He, he, if you'll remember in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, it says, the, the, the devil is a roaring lion seeking to devour. I don't know if you've ever seen a, a documentary on the Lion Kingdom, okay? But the lion doesn't kill the whole herd of zebra, okay? He's not attacking the whole herd of antelope, okay? He waits to see one kind of meandering by himself, one that's been relocated or removed because then that one is exposed and vulnerable. And he is a roaring lion seeking to devour. Listen, that's what he wants to do. It's what he did in Israel. He thought if I can separate them, relocate them, and remove them from the thing where they find community, from the place where they find their security, from the place where God is doing something, if I can get them out and away from that, they'll be exposed and I can have my way. So how much did he relocate, relocate them? About 1,000 miles. It's kind of like going from New York City to Orlando. And, and how'd they get there? He just called Uber. He says, I need, I, need a, uh, I need Uber to come over and get about a half million people. No, they didn't have that. He put them on a train. Didn't have a train. He put them on a boat, put them on a plane. Had nothing. They walked. He had them walk. Now, you talk about humbling, okay? Hey, guys, 
we're here. We're taking you back home with us to a new place. And it's, it's, it's Babylon, man, where things are happening. Okay, man, I'm in. Let's go. A thousand-mile walk, you got a different view of the place that you're headed. And so he relocates you. That's what he wants to do, get you outside of where God has you, okay, because then you're exposed. Number two, after he relocates you, he wants to redefine you, redefine you. Now, in verses 3 and 4, this is what it says. It says, the king commanded Ashpenaz, Ashpenaz, he says, who was in charge of his court officials. Now, remember the phrase, court officials. If you're looking at a King James Bible today or a new King James, you're going to see a different word there. And I'm going to explain that in a minute, how this word came about. So, so he was in charge of the court officials to choose some of the Israelites who were of royal and noble descent. Okay, so these were important Hebrew people that he's supposed to pick. He wants them to be young men. You remember I told you they're like 13 to 15 years old, just, just boys becoming young men. Very uh, 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 moldable, manipulatable, okay? And he says there was no physical defect in them, and they were handsome. Okay, that eliminates some of us. And it says, and well-versed in all kinds of wisdom, well-educated and having keen insight, and who were capable of entering the king's royal service and to teach them the literature and language of the Babylonians. Now, he's going to bring them in because he wants to uh, re, uh, redefine them redefine them okay he wants to give them a new identity now you remember I said the court officials to remember that word court officials okay in its original uh, wording in the Hebrew the word is saris saris means court official slash castrates now this is this is PG 13 okay so just bear with me it, 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 a eunuch what you, you may wonder I don't even know what a eunuch is guys it's your worst nightmare okay you think a colonoscopy is bad or you think, uh, you know, uh, having a root canal is bad, okay? Becoming a eunuch, it's your worst nightmare. It removes your manhood. It emasculates you. It removes who it is that God has made you to be. It reduces your testosterone level so that you will become more complicit and more compliant to the new regime, to the new philosophy, to the new way. Not only that, these words merged often, court official and eunuch. Okay, why? Because if you were a king and you took captive a bunch of young men and you are a king, it meant you probably had a harem, a group of women that were your own. And if they were going to be around your women, you didn't want them messing with your women. So they would unman you. That's basically what they would do. Because then they could trust you. It's also like if you ever have, if you get a dog and, and you have him fixed, there's a good word. That's what a eunuch is. He's fixed. Okay. Uh, you, you have a dog and you have him fixed. You can notice a dip. Typically, there's a noticeable difference in his, uh, in his uh, approach to life. Okay. It, it changes the way he processes life. Okay. He becomes more calm. <laughs> What's there to live for? You know, it just changes everything. And so here's the deal. Listen. So here's these young boys, man. Handsome wise, amazing, without blemish, and they've walked a thousand miles only to be emasculated or neutered, and it's like, welcome to the magic kingdom, you know? That's not what they thought. Now listen to me, church. We live in a world of compromise. We live in a world where we will not draw a line not to be crossed, where we just surrender and breach our convictions. And we, we haven't been marched a thousand miles. Men, we haven't been emasculated. And so what the king knew 
is if I can get them in here, I can redefine them. I can take who it is that they thought they were, who it is that God designed them to be, and I can manipulate that and redefine who they are. And so Isaiah, some people don't, some people don't believe they were eunuchs. Josephus, who was a first century uh, historian, extremely valued, respectable. Most of the time, people take his views and, and, and for the most part, embrace it. He believed they were eunuchs. Not only that, but in Isaiah chapter 39.5, there's another prophecy that talked about the siege of the nation of Israel. And here's what it says. Isaiah said to Hezekiah, listen to the word of the Lord who commands armies. He says, look at it, a time is coming when everything in your, in your palace and the things your ancestors have accumulated to this day will be carried away to Babylon and nothing will be left, says the Lord. Now watch this. Some of your very own descendants whom your father will be, whom you father will be taken away and will be made eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. I truly believe they were, they became eunuchs. I believe the king made them eunuchs because he wanted to unman them. He wanted to take everything they thought they were and redefine them. Now, that's, that's what happened in this world. Now, the world system redefines you. It begins to deny God-given, the beauty of God-given sexuality. It begins to, to sexually reorient, reorient everybody. It begins to suggest this, that gender identity is really a thing of the past. It's not something that is important to us. That we should have, that, that, that men should become more womanized and women should be more manly. And that's not what God intended. Now, woman is equal to, not less than men. Men, is, men are equal to, not less than women. We're complementary. We have complementary roles that God has established from before he created mankind. So what has happened now is these royal, noble men of God have become eunuchs to a new king. Everything changes. So here's what the enemy does, strategies. He relocates you. He knows if he can get you out there, you're vulnerable. He wants to redefine you, begin to make you question who God has made you to be. And then thirdly, I want you to see, he wants to reprogram you. He wants to reprogram you. Now watch what he does. He gets these guys, he marches them into the new city, magic kingdom. Okay, he demands them. And then he says, now I want you to go to school. This is what he says. He says in verse 5, so the king assigned them a daily ration from his royal delicacies. And from the wine he himself drank. And they were to be trained for the next three years. At the end of that time, they were to enter the king's service. This is chock full of information. Okay, chock full. The first thing he wants to do is in the first part, he wants to reprogram your doctrine. Your doctrine for living. What is doctrine? Doctrine is the, is the thing that builds your belief system. The thing that determines your convictions. And if it's not built on this book, it's built on false information. So your doctrine, your decision making, the way you live your life has to be built on truth. And it's this book. Now, these Jews, these little Hebrew boys, man, they, they got this. They were taught this book. And so their doctrine, their way of deciding things was built on God's world view. Now, he says the first thing, he, he says, I'm going to change your doctrine. And he says, I'm, listen, guys, I know, it's been a rough, I, know, I know it's been a rough life. I know you walked a thousand miles. I, I know, you know you're 
you're, uh, you, you're not as much man as you thought you were going to be. But, but I got something else for you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you eat of the king's table. You don't have to be, eat uh, rice and beans and drink water anymore, man. I'm going to give you the king's food and the king's wine. Okay? He wants to change their belief system about, how, about their diet. First, it's food. Now, we're going to find out they're going to reject this, but the, he's going to offer them meat from the king's cafe but see they would know the king don't eat just what we eat because we're in a, under what's called a jewish diet a kosher diet it means this there's certain animals man that i can eat there's other animals they are unclean before god and i cannot eat them and he's going to be bringing them over here in a picnic basket all right not only that i, I there's animals that are clean but he has uncleaned them because he's offered them to foreign gods. Because in that culture, what would happen? So you might have a calf, and, it, and it, it would be considered clean under God's ordinance. But what this king of uh, Nebuchadnezzar would do is they would, they would kill a calf, offer part of it to a foreign god, and then they'd eat the rest of it. And here are these Jewish boys who said, you just messed up, you just uncleaned a clean animal. So I don't know where, where this meat's been. I can't eat it. Not only that, he says, I'm going to bring you the best wine that this world can produce. These Hebrew boys knew that the wine of the pagans was different than the wine of the Hebrews. You see, wine was a good thing. Fermented wine was a good thing. But in Jewish culture, let me just let you know, the reason fermented wine was a good thing is because they would take one part wine, dilute it with five parts water, so that they would have a lightly flavored, uh, clean, sanitized water. That's why fermented wine was used. In pagan culture, strong drink, the, the stronger the wine, the better. Because it was used to inebriate. It was used to, to change our mindset, to loosen their inhibitions. You see, these Hebrews boys would know that in Proverbs chapter 21, because Proverbs, with the book of Proverbs, the, the Proverbs of, of Solomon were written before 605 B.C. They would have learned these as Hebrew children. They would learn Proverbs 21 that says this. It says, wine is a, mar a mocker. And a strong drink, and it's a brawler. Whoever goes astray by them is not wise. The guys, I'm, we're, we want to choose a wise road. And Scripture says it's not good for us, so we don't want your wine. Not only that, they would know also that uh, we find in uh, Proverbs 31.4, it is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to crave strong drink. They're like, we, it's not good for us. We don't want that as part of our life. And here you are presenting all of this to you. They would also know that in Proverbs chapter 23, 31, it says, Do not look at the wine when it's red, when it sparkles in a cup, when it goes down smoothly. They said, listen, we know we've been warned. It's not for us. He says afterward, he says, it bites like a snake and stings like a viper. They knew that. And here's this king, man, the king of the most powerful kingdom on the planet saying, listen, I'm going to bring you the food of my table and the drink of my cup. And they're like, I see it coming. Just like he relocated us, just like he redefined us, now he's trying to reprogram our doctrine. Not only that, not only did they know that, they knew about Noah. After God saved the world, Noah got out, planted a vineyard, got drunk, and his son looked upon him, and his, the, the heritage of his son was cursed. We don't know exactly what he did, but because of alcohol, it cursed a whole people group. He, he would have known about Lot, who had two daughters, who wanted to have children. And so they got their dad inebriated, intoxicated, 
had relations with him and had children by their own dad. They knew that story. They knew about David and Uriah, how David had committed adultery, and now to cover it up, he wanted Uriah to get drunk. They knew all of the stories, and so they knew that stuff is not for us. They wanted to reprogram their doctrine. Not only that, they wanted to, re they wanted to reprogram their philosophy. It says you're going to be trained for three years. And so they're going to go to school to get an advanced degree, three-year degree in cultural studies. All right? They're going to change their views on education, change their views on history, change their views on a religion, change their views on art and literature, change everything about their view. And so they would change their, uh, they would not only change their doctrine, but they would also change what they, their philosophy, how they viewed life, their cultural worldview. They didn't stop there. Now they wanted to change their allegiance. Now, in the passage, it says that they would enter the king's service. When you do your research on this, this really unpacks a really, a really neat thing. It says at the end of three years, maybe they got all A's. Maybe they're beautiful or handsome and without a blemish. Maybe everything is looking good, but they still, at the end of three years, they had to parade these young men in front of the king to be judged as to whether or not they were fit to serve in the king's court. All right? So to determine if they're going to get served, they had to be inspected. They had, to, they had to present themselves to the king. You see, he wanted to reprogram their allegiance. He, he wanted to change who they considered God to be. He wanted to change uh, what their view was about their life moving forward and who they would draw a line for. So as we move forward... He relocates, he redefines, he reprograms, and lastly, and this is significant. I learned some powerful stuff here. I want to help you. This is really good for you today. It's good for me all week. I was ready to preach this on about Tuesday, okay? And so the last one is he wants to rename you. Now watch what happens. We've heard this before probably. We've heard these names, but I want you to watch this. I want you to pay attention because it'll help you. He wants to rename you. Listen to what he says in verse 6. He says, as it turned out... He says, among these young men were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now, those are cool names. I mean, I, if you're, you know, if you're going to have a little boy, those are all cool names. Those really are. Now, watch what happens. He's not satisfied with their Hebrew name, so he wants to give them a new name. It says, but the overseer of the eunuchs of the court officials, he renamed them. He gave the name to Daniel. He gave the name Belteshazzar. Now, that's a cool name, but you're going to find out in a minute it's not a good name. To Hananiah, he gave the name Shadrach. That's a cool name. It's kind of Shadrach, all right? But it's not, it's a cool name, but it's not a good name. Then he goes on, and to Mishael, he named Meshach. And Azariah, he named Abednego. Abednego. Now, now on the surface, it's, okay, it's cool. He's in a new land, okay? If I go live in Brazil, I'll take on a Brazilian name. You know, if I go to Honduras, you can, you know, change my name a little bit, manipulate it. That's not what King Nebuchadnezzar's doing. He's re, he is renaming their orientation and their allegiance. He's changing everything. Now, watch what this means. In Hebrew, when you see the name, the letters E-L, that's like Elohim, okay? It's God, okay? So when somebody's name has E-L in it, there's a, there's a reference to God. He had good and godly parents, man, that named, they did. They named their children godly names to remind them of their, their loyalty and their heritage. So his name was Daniel. God is my judge. 
not in, not in Babylon. His name will become Belteshazzar, a lady God protects life. Secondly, he changed the name of Hananiah. A-H is a reference to Yahweh, another name for God. Hananiah, uh, Yahweh is gracious. Good, godly name. Changed his name to Shadrach. I am very fearful. He goes on and he names Mishael, who is what God is, to Meshach, I am of little account and there is none greater than Aku. Aku would be a lowercase g God, an idolatrous God that the pantheon of gods that Babylon had was included in. Then he goes on and he says, as for Azariah, A-H, Yahweh is my helper, a good and godly name. He changed it to Abednego, servant of Nebo, the God over the art of writing and vegetation. You see, the Babylonian worldview is not content with you being even remotely connected to the God of our creation. He's, he, he's not satisfied until he rips you from your God-given calling as part of the eternal kingdom of God and places you in a new land, changes your identity, changes the way you program, the way, you, uh, the way your philosophy is, and then changes your name. He will not leave you alone. And so that's why it's so important that we have a line. Because if we don't have a line, next thing you know, we're in the middle of Babylon and the Babylonian worldview. And we, are, we have been taken captive full inside and out. Secular name, secular belief, everything's secular. So here, listen to this. We're done. You ready? We're done. Here we are, 2020. 2,600, 25 years later from when Daniel penned this amazing book and the Babylonian way is still at play how timely is it that God would put on my heart to go through Daniel then in 2020 listen what he has done he relocates you March of 2020 COVID-19 covert 19 okay it slipped in unannounced Nobody saw that coming. <laughs> My grandson said, when things surprised him, he said, I had not seen that coming. All right? Let me tell you something. Nobody had seen that coming. All right? March came. I was on a cruise. I was on a cruise ship. Okay? <laughs> yeah. That's a good place to be in the middle of a pandemic. Okay? Germs everywhere. I mean, they wiped everything. Now, you couldn't go in there. They didn't wipe you down. It was, it was, it was weird. We got off the boat. And the whole world's upside down. Okay? COVID, covert 19 showed up. And listen what it did. It swept every, it relocated everybody. Some of you are still relocated, working from home. Anybody in here working from home? Any students in here doing virtual school from home? All right? Anybody in here uh, been relocated? All of us at some level have been relocated. The church of all things have been relocated. The parking lot this morning, I, I, man, I bragged on them. Because every week for, since March, man, we've had two services, three services a lot of that time, and people just come and park in the parking lot. Because they will not be relocated. They've committed, they've drawn a line in the sand and said, that's where I'm going to be. And they show up at church. And many of you are in that midst. And I'm as proud as I am, really doesn't matter. I'm telling you, church, there's a God in heaven 
who has called us out to come together and forsake not assembling together, such as is common with a whole lot of people, Scripture says, and even more so as we see the day approaching when Jesus' second return is here, we ought to be coming together. I applaud you, but God honors you for being faithful when the enemy, the world, the Babylonian way has tried to relocate you. People brighter than me, church leadership people, say that the relocation of the church will have separated 25 to 35 percent of the people who once attended church regularly. They will never come back in because they didn't draw a line and they didn't see it coming. And now they're in a whole new world, a whole new way, a whole new habitual system, a whole new level of commitments now. Church is out of the way. I can commit my Sundays to everything else. It's nothing new. Not only does it relocate you, but it also wants to redefine you. Now, uh, you say, well, how have they redefined us? Have you turned on the news lately? In the middle of a pandemic, when we're relocated, watch this. The enemy of the Babylonian way says, okay, they're relocated, they're vulnerable, and they're exposed. They've been separated, at least at some level, from their community, from the ones that they come together with to be strengthened according to God's word. So now that we've got them out there and their minds are a little bit open, let's redefine them. And so along comes agendas that wants to say, hey, 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 men, it's okay if you want to be a woman. Women, it's okay if you want to be a man. Boys and girls, it's okay for you to, to decide your sexual identity. Everything beautiful about sexuality that God ordained and created in the garden has now been suggested as an old way of living. Let's eradicate and erase it because it no longer matters. Anything goes and we can be whoever we want to be. You know that's true. If you've, if you've heard that kind of garbage lately on the news, say, I have. Let me tell you something. That is a lie from the pits of hell itself. God designed and predetermined manhood and womanhood as complementary to each other so that they could come together being helpers to one another, come alongside and be strengthened with each other, and then to procreate to make little boys and little girls who have a God-given identity that's, that's wired, predetermined in their DNA structure that says this is a boy and this is a girl, and if a little girl decides she wants to be a boy, let's help her find out that God has a better idea. If a little boy wants to be a little girl, let's go to that little boy and love on him and say, listen, God has designed you so much more special, so much more particular with a purpose and a plan and help them find out that their identity is not determined by this world, but by the God who whispered it in their formation. Now watch this. He didn't stop right there. He wants to reprogram. He wants to send our children to a new school. He wants to send our children to, to uh, 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 get a degree in cultural studies. Oh, let me back up on reprogram. I forgot this one. Not only that, but he wants to reprogram our, or he wants to reprogram, he wants to reprogram, re reprogram our doctrine. Listen to how he wants to reprogram our doctrine. You remember the boys just said, he said, I'm going to give you wine and food from my table. They said, that's not for us. Okay. He wants to reprogram our doctrine. He wants to change the way we view our doctrine. Alcohol in our world, would you not agree that alcohol and drugs is taking, alcohol and drugs are taking our world captive? 
We celebrate with it. We promote it. We speak in favor of it everywhere we go. Okay? It's taken our world captive because we don't even see the line coming. So he wants to change, reprogram our doctrine. Not only our doctrine, he wants to reprogram our philosophy. Now our kids are, are sent to schools. I want to show you this. This guy named John Ellis. I saw him on television. He is, he is a professor emeritus at the University of California in Santa Cruz. And he's researched the change of education, higher education philosophy. He's done the research over the last, I think it's, a, let's see, whatever that is, 50 years, 50 years. And this is what he shows. The breakdown of higher education. Now, there's, there's two passions or two persuasions. There's the left liberal-leaning persuasion that truth is uh, uh, relative, okay, and that we, it's always recreating itself. That's the left side. And then there's the conservative side, the right side, that believes no truth is fixed and it's God-given, okay? So in education, in higher education, this is going, some of you parents that have children, teenagers or college, it's going to rock your world. It's going to freak you out. Freak me out a little bit. Mine are grown because i got grandchildren. Watch this. In 1969, in the colleges around America, there were three left-to-center-leaning professors to every two right-to-center-leaning professors. It's a good balance. You got, now you have two mindsets or two philosophies that when kids go to college, they're exposed, all right? So they get a balanced diet of the worldview and a conservative, biblical, Judeo-Christian worldview, okay? So they were getting both, okay? In, that was 69. In 1999, it shifted. In 30 years, it went from 3 to 2 to 5 to 1. But they're still getting a little bit of both worlds. In 2005, six years later, 8 to 1. Eight left-leaning professors to every one right-leaning professor. 2020, this year, 13 to 1. That's alarming, but listen, it gets worse. This year, associate professors in our colleges around the world. The ratio is 50 to 1. And then you wonder why when you turn on the news and you got a bunch of 20-year-old people running up and down the streets acting like a bunch of absolute idiots, fighting an enemy they don't even know who it is, saying, shouting out profanities and expletives and stupidity. Why? Because they've been indoctrinated, reprogrammed, and educated in a world that's 50 to 1 left-leaning. Okay? He wants to reprogram our philosophy for living. He also wants to reprogram our allegiance. Would you not agree we live in a world that's more worried about the wor what the world thinks of us than what God thinks of us? Crying out loud, we're more worried about what a coach thinks of us than we are about what God thinks of us. You remember I said that earlier, that God gave me the gift of prophecy, meaning to foretell? I'm telling you the truth. We live in a world that's more worried about what the world thinks of us than what the God who created us and has offered us an eternity with Him than what He thinks about us. And it's a crying shame, all right? So He wants to change our allegiance. He, he wants us, our allegiance has been transferred from the God of creation to the lowercase g of this world. And lastly, and I think this is the best one, is he wants to rename us. Still today, he wants to rename us. Listen, 
The world wants to name me. They want to give me a new name. They want to call me intolerant. They want to call me um, um, a bigot. They want to call me unloving. They want to call me a white supremacist. They want to call me a racist. They have a whole long list of names that the world wants to name me, and he wants to name you too. I'm standing on this stage. Got a camera right there as a witness of what I'm saying. I'm speaking it to my church. I said it in the early service. Listen, it does not matter. It matters absolutely zero what the world wants to name me because the world cannot change my nature. It can change my name, but it cannot change my nature. When the world looks at me and wants to give me a whole list of names, there is a God in heaven who looks down from his throne at my heart and my soul. And he says, Joel, you're not a racist. Joel, you're not a white supremacist. Joel, you're not intolerant. Joel, you are my son. That's my name. I am a Christian. Now listen to me. If you are a Christian and you are a racist, you need to take that to the foot of the cross and beg for forgiveness. If you are a Christian and you are a white supremacist, you think that you are something special to this earth, you need to take that to the foot of the cross and beg for repentance, uh, for forgiveness and repent. Another name they want to give me, and I love this one, favored. Favored. I got news for you and for the world. And for the idiots that are wanting to call me favored, I am favored. And I claim favored because my favor was given from God, purchased on a bloody cross, that he would choose to love somebody like me, completely sinful, completely wretched, completely hell-bound and deserving it. And he would choose from his perfection and his sovereignty in heaven to look down and he said, I'm going to favor you with some grace. And I'm going to do everything it takes to lavish my favor upon you. From the moment you receive Jesus through all of eternity, you will be a favored child of the Most High God. So here we are today, church. And here's where the problem comes in. The world is full of people who want to say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I'm a Christian. And then live a life that looks more like hell than it does heaven we, we want to claim a name okay without having it as part of our life I had a conversation with a young man this week and, and he was real concerned about racial tension in our world I am too he was real concerned about what part he played in social injustice I am too but he had begun to embrace the names that the world had given him I've known him since before he was in middle school. And I told him, and I'll tell you, protesting, walking up and down the street, acting like an idiot will not change a culture. Living a life just like these Hebrew boys, committed to a God that's bigger than we can understand, that is what changes and moves a culture. And the question for you, church, is this. You ready? You ready? Where's your line? Where's your line? Where's the line you've drawn, the sand etched in the granite, chiseled in the steel that you will not cross? There's no price great enough that can move you, no suffering great enough that can sway you. You have fixed that line. It's important that you know the line before the world invites you to cross it. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes, and we're finished.
I want you to know you'll never be able to draw a line in the right place if you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus for lordship and salvation. If there's never been a moment in your time where you said, God, I am everything the world calls me and I embrace it, you own that and you say, but God, I think you've created me for more. I believe it. I want to give my broken, messed up self to the greatness of who you are. I want to surrender my allegiance to the world's king, and I want to give myself to the king of kings. From this day forward, I want Jesus to be my Savior and my Lord. I surrender all. Save me on this day and make me your own. If you need to do that today, you just pray that prayer. Give your life to God. Surrender, and he'll save you. In this room today, there's many, most of us, who have already made that commitment. We've given our life to Christ. My challenge for you, for me, for us as a church is to ask the Holy Spirit where He wants us to draw that line. Let Him help us draw a line never to be breached. Moving forward that we won't jump back and forth playing hopscotch with the lines of truth. That we will live for Him fully surrendered from this day forward and I want you to know you and I and we as a church will never be disappointed in living like these Hebrew boys sold out for the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings Lord God we thank you for those little boys that you gave strength to stand difficult times that in their very early days I thank you that they had good godly mommies and daddies who would help them establish those lines so that when the enemy invited them to cross they knew they just couldn't do that even if it meant death itself wow what a beautiful testimony God you didn't just want it for those four Hebrew boys you want it for us. So God, help us know how to draw the line. And then next week when we look at the rest of the chapter, help us understand what tools we have to help us hold that line. And we'll give you the praise and the glory for it all. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that God spoke to you through this message. If you enjoyed the message, be sure to subscribe to our weekly podcast and visit our website at sturkey.church to find all the latest information and upcoming events. Be sure to join us again next week. Until then, may God bless you.